You're listening to WLPN LP, Chicago 105.5 FM, Lumpen Radio. This is Buildings on Air, episode number three, the show where we talk about architecture and frequently architecture and politics. So we got a good show lined up. Uh, we're going to start with our regular segment, The Mailbag, where we take your listener questions, everything from home repair tips to serious questions about architecture theory. There's a chat box on lumpenradio.com. Feel free to send in your questions as we're going. Uh, that'll be the first segment. And then we'll have a, a guest show to Vashak Maze. We'll be talking about the land ethic and alternative thinking on environmentalism and architecture. And then later in three o'clock hour, we'll be talking with Peggy Deemer and Killian Riano of the Architecture Lobby about what architecture and activism holds for 2017. So really looking forward to that. Uh, but yeah, let's jump into the mailbag. I'm joined by our regular mailbag correspondents, <laughs> Anne Louie and Craig Reschke. How's it going, guys? Great. How are you? I'm doing excellent. So I, I hear you guys were just on a cross-country road trip. Do you see any excellent architecture? We well, maybe not architecture, but we stopped and saw Spiral Jetty outside of Salt Lake City. That oh, was boy. an amazing, uh, both an amazing project and an amazing drive from Salt Lake City out to this kind of desolate landscape. Yeah, maybe you can tell some of the listeners what Spiral Jetty is in case they don't know. It's it's famous in architecture circles. Uh, mm, now I think we should have Googled a little bit more. <laughs> All I know is that there was a famous land art movement, and this gentleman went out in the middle of nowhere in Utah and with a bunch of dump trucks uh, pulled up all these kind of beautiful black rocks that are in this area and kind of replicated the shape of some jetties that were already in the lake. So you can kind of like walk out on this uh, long promenade that circles around into Salt Lake. Um, But for 30 years after he built it, the lake levels were too high, so it had disappeared completely. So only recently has it kind of like been back in action. So Uh it is this kind of um, super long scale project that um, appears and disappears over the years, and we are we are lucky enough to kind of see it and get to explore it. Actually, almost totally on our own with our dog. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and I think fun fact: we went there on Robert Smith and Smithson's birthday, oh, January second. Uh, so it was some sort of uh, like Spiral nice, Jetty nice, magic. nice extra touch. Yeah, yeah. And it was covered in snow. The lake was like mostly frozen over. It was, it was super beautiful. Our dog loved the wide open spaces with nothing else around. Well, at first she was like kind of walking on the path like, oh, I get it. Like I walk in a spiral. And then she's like, oh, actually, I can be free from conceptual art. And then she like kind of ran off. Yeah, the dogs just don't care about culture. It's they, a, yeah. yeah. <laughs> she's a subversive land art user. That's, oh, that's how great. I'll say yeah. Fantastic. Well, should we jump into some questions, you guys? Yeah. All right. Yeah. So I've, I've got some good ones. Um, <laughs> Mostly, mostly pulled from that interesting depth of the internet, Yahoo Answers. There's some some real gems on there. <laughs> some people who are in some real dire need of uh, uh, help. <laughs> um, so, so I guess the first question I'll ask from Yahoo Answers uh, is: What are all the tubes and things on the top of a house? Should I cover them up during winter? It's a very topical question right now. It's mm. four degrees here in Chicago. It's nice and sunny at least, but. Well, I guess, first of all, I wouldn't call them tubes. (laughs) (laughs) It's the the internet tubes. It's where the internet comes in, right? (laughs) Uh, Okay, what what are some of the things on top of a house? There's chimneys. Wait, wait, wait. Those are tube-shaped. <laughs> <laughs> you mean like 
ex- well, well, on a somewhat unrelated note, I recently had a student who moved here from China who said, she's like, oh no, we've had an emergency. Like all our pipes are exploding. I think there was very bad plumbing in our house. And I was like, oh, but did you leave your taps on? And did you leave your heat to a certain level? Because those of us not from wintry countries or places of the earth do not know that that is the thing that you need to do. So this is a separate note relating <laughs> to pipes in homes. But the I don't t- know. What, t- else is, what else is on top? You're the one who knows. Well, okay. Jesus. There's there's <laughs> there's chimneys if you have any sort of uh, furnace, right? Whether it's burning gas or some other fuel, yep. right? So you, that's you exhausting at the that. top. Yeah. You have to vent all of the sinks and... Uh, Oh, soil, now, soil stacks. Yeah, now what does that mean? Our listeners might not know about a soil stack. Oh, I, well, I did just pass my building systems exam, so I should know what a soil stack <laughs> is. <laughs> There's a magical diagram where some, I don't know, you should explain, you seem to actually know. <laughs> well, I think first we have to talk about why plumbing needs to be funded, right? Yes. If you've ever poured the jug of milk over too quickly and it kind of glug, glug, glugs out, right? The... The pipes need to have air coming from the top, so as the water goes down, it does not get either suctioned back up one of the drain pipes or um, stuck with air pockets. Right. So there is both a soil stack, a vent, stack vent. a stack vent, and a vent stack. <laughs> right. So, so if you see, if you ever see some some of the pipes sticking out of the sides of the houses or the vents, so the the metaphor that I always use is like, you know, when you put your thumb on top of a straw oh, that's and the water cool. stays in the straw. Like, oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. That's that, better than my milk jug <laughs> analogy. <laughs> hey, I went to IIT. What can I say? <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, you know, the water sticks in the straw, right? And uh, you don't want, uh, if that water is sewage and the pipe is your plumbing, then you can imagine how that would be a recipe for disaster. So you should not cover them up in winter. <laughs> that's right. So, or you will have so a sewage emergency. That's right. Yeah, your plumbing will be like a, a straw. Uh-huh. Hmm. What else? Is there anything else that sticks up? I think there's, there's the fans, right, for the, oh, like for the a, attic. Or attic. Attic vents, right, yeah. to let heat out of the attic in I the I guess summer. it depends on what kind of building they live in. That's true. Because there could be like some... Flat roof. It could be some sort of HVAC right. uh, air cooling tower or something, right, if they live in a big building. But yeah, yeah I think... Def- don't cover that up. Definitely don't. <laughs> I just think don't cover up any of these holes. It's, they're there for a reason. Um, Let the building's orifices breathe as they right. will. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't cover up your mouth or your nose or anything else. Right? Any, <laughs> any snow or rain that goes down the top of the vent stack is just going to help flush out your pipes a little more. There you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Is Quite, that successfully answered? I think answered? that's a successfully answered question. <laughs> but yeah. there's, I think there's more tubes right on top of a building what about the uh like the electrical service usually comes into a conduit that is near the roof before going down to the basement that's true especially in chicago yeah where there's above ground electricity Mm. yeah and you guys know all about that because it's because of your your wonderful future firm alley project um (laughs) yeah but but, but, but many (laughs) garages do not get electric actually but yes well, it's a okay. separate note. <laughs> yeah. Let's move on to a different question. Uh, this is a, what is, what's the nominal size of a two by four? Um, and I think this is a trick question because the nominal size is of a two, two by, by four, four is two by four. <laughs> yes. Do they mean what is the real size of a two by four? Perhaps that's what they mean. Yeah. Which, which would be of course, one and a half by three and a half. Mm. But actually I did some research on this question and I brought in my, my good faithful, uh, William Cronin book, Nature's <laughs> Metropolis, where he goes into like some of the interesting history about um, 
nominal sizes. Do you guys know about any of this? Have you researched it? I do not. Mm-mm. Yeah. So, sorry, sorry I'm, I'm taking away some of your question answering duties here. I sense <laughs> you in your heart wanted to answer this question, or perhaps you found this question in order to tell about the history of nominal May, well, you know, dimensional just, lumber. It hit, yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it's rare that you get to talk about something so nerdy. I will take the show as an excuse to do that. <laughs> Please all, all regale us with the history of dimensional <laughs> well, lumber it's, now. It's related to the history of Chicago. And, uh, you know, this is a community radio station broadcasting out of the community the future. So we got to, you know, rep the city. But, yeah, it used to be because they actually made lumber. They cut it at two by four, and it was green lumber. It it would still have a lot of moisture in it. Mm. So then by the time it dried out, it would be a smaller dimension. But a lot of this, the standardization of lumber started in Chicago because of its relationship to the kind of territory. It was a clearinghouse for natural resources, mm. as Cronin talks about, um, which, was, which was really interesting. And I guess Chicago is really famous for selling lots of green lumber that mm. had too much uh, water in it. Mm. And so uh, the fun fact here is, you know, when you kind of drive across the Midwest and you see all the barns that have really warped boards, like, those aren't warped boards because they were, like, sitting there for so long in a field. They were warped because they bought the wood from Chicago, and the industrialists didn't let it cure long enough in mm. the lumber yards. And mm. so later on, the wood warped. Mm. Kind of interesting. interesting. So, so the, the, the kind of rustic imaginary that we have of these warped wood barns actually has to do with, like, mm. a history of industrial labor and uh, standardization and, in, in the city, which mm. is interesting super interesting yeah. does that do you have an explanation of why two by fours come in eight foot 12 foot 16 foot lengths i, I do not know but I, I found a really great exceptionally nerdy document about the history of dimensional lumber <laughs> i'll put it on the the show's twitter account or something don't need to regale everyone with that um so yeah here's another question more about kind of architectural work which is a. Uh, uh, our jargon is frightfully poor. What do people actually mean when they say activating the space? And what architectural jargon drives you crazy? Mm. Oh, we were just talking about this. I feel like we should have some sort of funny answer for activating the space. Like, like. I want to activate my lunch right now. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what that means. I think that's, like a, I think that's a fake word. Yeah. I, we were just talking about all the words that either our students or we as critics use in architecture school that we think should be banned. And among them is activating space. Like activating space is not not like a thing. Or like when students are like, this is the public space in my building. And they just mean like an area of the plan that they haven't filled in yet. It's just like a big open space. And they're like, here the public can be. And we're like, "We we don't really know what that means. And maybe like related to your later segment, we also want to like ban the word sustainability because like people also just like point to things that are like, that's a green building. Like you have not actually figured out, you know, kind of what this means and how this works within like bigger conversations about ecology or resilience. Like those all just seem like vague words that people kind of use as a, a cover to mean things that are vague. Like community, I actually think it is sometimes another one in architecture school. Not to say that that word has no value, but sometimes that it's used as kind of a, a cover. You know, we, we had Mitch McEwen come uh, talk to my students about their work. And she's like, when you say community, like, do you just mean black people? Because if you want to say that, like, just say that, you know, right. don't, don't be so vague about this. Like, that's where the community can gather. So I don't know. I think like these kind of like dangerously vague terms are ones that we we also support support banning. Well, they have a tendency to reproduce very quickly too. Like I think especially across a certain school, 
right? Like someone starts using one word all the time and then you see like it kind of populate across the students. Or I think the same thing happens to critics on juries too. Like oh, yeah. there's just certain like commend is a word that comes up in juries all the time that just makes me want to scream, right? Like <laughs> commend, interesting, like all of these kind of generic words that Right. have totally lost and a, lost meaning. Yeah. And of course, for, for those of you who are listening who might not be as familiar with architecture school, the, the jury you're referring to is the jury that comes in and judges all the students' work. Mm. It's a kind of uh, really intense system. If, you, if you've been art school, you're, you're familiar with it, mm. but you basically pin up all of your work and then they invite a bunch of... Uh, People, people like Craig Ann and myself <laughs> to, to come uh, 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 tear it apart. Well, hopefully it's constructive criticism um, and, and not mean, uh, but sometimes it can be pretty mean. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think activating the space drives me crazy. And I, I think uh, I also, I also want to be equipping our public audience here with, uh, with a series of terms that they should be wary of when, whenever an architect comes to submit something. Mm-hmm. For their uh, for their community at their community board meetings and everything else, you can go to hearings about buildings that are happening in your neighborhood. And whenever you hear any of these words, I think you should you should press them, press them at least. Uh, I, don't, I think architects are being they're not being disingenuous when they use these vague words, but um, it can be. Mm. Do, you, do you disagree? No, no, I totally agree. I mean, and I sometimes wonder if activating is like a cloak or some sort of camouflage we wear. Uh, to disguise some ulterior motive, right? Like, mm. I, we often hear architects like, oh, we're going to, like, activate this public space. But really, it is like, this is an untapped market that we would like our practice to have some, you know, work in, right? right. And it doesn't mean, like, that work is necessarily going to be bad or it's not going to, like, engage the people around it or it could actually serve to bring people together in one way or another. But, like, by activating, do you just mean, like, getting work in this place where you previously couldn't get work because it wasn't a private market or a private client or whatever. I don't know. I think a lot of those words, yeah, kind of like they, there's like a do-gooder sense to them that allows a veil to cover what we may actually be doing. Yeah, or, or at least an inflated sense of agency, maybe, <laughs> right? Because it's like we design containers, <laughs> yeah, yeah. essentially. We design, a, we design buckets uh, yeah. for things to happen in. Yeah. So, so, you know, we don't, we don't really have much control over the activation of space. I mean, that's maybe being a little disingenuous on my part. Mm. An, an interesting space can create interesting activity. Sure. But, um, you know, it's really the people who are doing it, and, and we... Uh, we have a limited control over that. We can make spatial cues and suggestions, but that's kind of the tools in our toolkit. Yeah, like right before we left Boston, like the awful Boston City Hall Plaza, which is like, uh, oh, if I there's love one thing, I yeah, love that. Plaza. I like Boston City Hall, <laughs> but I, I agree that the plaza is kind of bad. And if there's one thing that Bostoners share in common is like their unified hatred of this <laughs> space, which is like just like very paved over and it isn't very, um, it's kind of like its relationship to the street is poorly organized. But like, uh, probably like a few weeks before we left, there were like these pink and blue and orange chairs that were kind of like stacked up and arranged around this space but they were actually like chained together so you couldn't move them or you couldn't use them or you can reorganize them and like when the weather was bad they had to be like you know like allocated to this specific shelter area and I can just like imagine the proposal for this like we're gonna activate the plaza with these chairs and then there was just like a sad pile of (laughs) chained up chairs that you know like people couldn't couldn't use or couldn't engage I mean I I, like I'm sure there's good intentions there but sometimes it seems like those placemaking things like, I don't know. They, they are a victim of their own good intentions. This, this is a bit of a tangent, but we took uh, 
Circus for Construction, our mobile gallery to the Boston City Hall Plaza, and the for this festival called Tech Jam. Tech Tech Jam. We were running out of money. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, and so we get there on the setup day, and there's this woman that is uh, pointing like 800 trucks, like where to go and drop things food off. Food trucks, so, mostly food trucks. Yeah. Like food trucks, people showing up with their like stands to advertise whatever kind of um, technology they're working on. Um, and she's like, "Oh, just go park circus over in this like corner of the plaza. Like that's the best place for it to be." And so which we, is like a 30 foot long building, by the way. Yeah. I mean that, that's how you have to imagine it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A, a huge trailer. So we go and park it in this corner, like detach the pickup truck. Like I take off to go do something else before we come back to set up for the festival the next day. And then I get this call that is like, oh my God, you have to get back here and move the trailer right now. It's sitting on this part of the plaza that is like not structurally sound. It has an old <laughs> yeah. water fountain underneath it. So like we see the plaza as this um, expansive space that is kind of all the same, but really it is, I think, built up over many Many iterations oh, yeah. of different types. So somewhere underneath there is a is a water fountain that is <laughs> is not not structurally sound. I guess that's right. Which is I always tell my students that they should be drawing the ground as much as they should be drawing the things above the ground because uh, architecture is that too. That's uh, wow. That's like really hippy dippy, but. It's true. We'll talk with Shoda more about no, that later. In the you hour. just earned the love and respect of every landscape architect that's listening. <laughs> uh, yeah, this, this is the ulterior motive of the show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's move on to another question here. Um, so, so here's a question How can I get wood floors where you can't feel the space between the wood? I've seen wood floors where you can see and feel the space between each piece of wood. I've also seen wood floors where you can't feel the space between the wood and it feels like the floor is one big piece of wood. What type of floor is that and how do I get it? I don't know anything about uh, this. <laughs> well, wood, wood floors come in a uh, many different types, right? They all come as planks, but some are pre-finished planks. Mm-hmm. So like, I think maybe what they're talking about is that like, if you get pre-finished bamboo wood floors, which I happen to have in my house... And when they're pre-finished, so the floor um, installer just comes in and nails them down, and then there's no finishing done afterwards. Whereas, like, older floors in Chicago that are done um, out of oak are put down similarly in boards, but there's uh, very little groove between them. They, like, they meet evenly, and then after they're installed, they come in with a sanding machine and sand the whole floor down so that it is even, and then they usually come back and stain it if you want a color and then they come back and do a finish coat on it which is like a, kind of like a varnish mm-hmm. and that usually makes it seem like one one solid piece although you still see the grain of every board yeah i'm wondering if they are looking at some other kind of floor you know is there some sort of continuous cork flooring that has been finished to look like wood so it seems like not a sheet good but yeah. one like a sea of wood, well, which I, just seems like the vibe that they want. I think they might actually be talking about like the vinyl click-in floors that are made to look like wood. Ah, uh, and but those have seams too. Right? It's funny because the more I start thinking about it, the more that I realize that those floors have more seams than the actual hardwood floors. Because I think it's like this weird skeuomorphic thing where like the synthetic thing mm-hmm. is trying to look more natural mm-hmm. by uh, actually building in flaws into the system. <laughs> Right? Which is super weird. Because it has both fake and real seams. It has vinyl seams, and then it has faux wood seams that are, like, 
applied yeah. postmodern like to the vinyl itself. Yeah, it's like well, it's like built into the the click in, so it's mm. a little bit more exaggerated. And then they usually have like a, it's like dye sublimated, right? Mm. Those vinyls, so they have they make the seams darker, so you you kind of register them more. Um, and that's I mean that's only a particular type of vinyl wood flooring. You can make it look like anything. But Maybe we should just say, in response to this question, say no to vinyl. <laughs> say no to vinyl. Yeah. Like a gym floor. I'm still thinking, like a basketball gym floor is a highly finished, sh- it's not like a sheet a b- good. Bowling? Yeah, like, I mean, those things have some sort of coating on them, which allows them to seem more continuous. Or I'm thinking, like, at uh, the arts block, there's, like, a plywood floor that is a larger sheet good, so it's, like, a 4 by 8 sheet, so that there are fewer seams and those seams have been like finished very nicely so it seems like a sea of wood perhaps those are all solutions that this person (laughs) could look into or just hire a really good hardwood floor company yeah that's right and i guess they they don't say which one they want if they want the seams or not (laughs) so uh, here's another question um what are the major risks involved with hiring an unlicensed building contractor maybe we can extend that to an unlicensed architect well, if you're in Chicago, you won't get anything built because you need a contractor's license to get the permit. Well, you won't get you, anything you, you legally. need one. Wink, wink. Yeah, you won't get anything <laughs> legally built. This person has already subverted that desire, right? They're saying they are illegally building something with an unlicensed contractor. Okay, I, sure. Like, there are... I mean, I think the barriers to getting a contractor's license are fairly low. Yeah. They require paying a fee. You have to carry insurance. I think you have to have like a recommendation from an existing licensed contractor. So not to say that those are not insurmountable, but they seem fairly low. So I would question why, if they are a good contractor, why yeah. they are not licensed. This what, is a little want, different than architecture. You, yeah, you <laughs> want, the, want the the bonded, right? Like you, when you see right. contractors' trucks, they say licensed and bonded, and the bonded, bonded and is, insured. The insur- is the insurance. Right. Yeah. So that is a risk. If something goes catastrophically wrong and you sue them, they have no money for you to take back to repair your broken house or broken garage or whatever. But it also depends on where you're located, right? Because in Chicago, you're required to have a general contractor's license. But in a lot of the surrounding suburbs, you're not like anyone can be a general contractor. Mm-hmm. So hmm. it kind of depends. Check check your, check your with your local building department. <laughs> <laughs> when, when in doubt, call, call the city, I guess. And I guess it depends <laughs> on what they're building, right? Yeah. For sure. And I, I, it, yeah, it depends on if it's a little repair or, or, or a whole house. I guess what about architects, though? What about... Oh, I don't know. I feel like there's some... <laughs> one day, some NCARB employee is going to listen. Like, I'm too at risk. Craig should answer this. He is already licensed. <laughs> I do not want a repeal of my licensure process because I am, you know, promoting unlicensed architectural practice. <laughs> Only hire licensed architects. It's so important. The most important thing. <laughs> this is I like think... me talking about things when I feel like the NSA is listening. I'm like, dear NSA, in case you're listening, I want to point out that this is part of a research project. <laughs> I think that there are lots of things that people that are trained as architects but do not yet have their architecture license can do for you. Like uh, many interior fit-outs, designs of single-family houses, um, there's lots of things. So I think like don't discount someone just because they are an unlicensed architect. They have a lot to offer depending on what you might need. Oh, but like the bigger beef I have with this is like the licensure process is 
arduous and is not um, reviewed by a kind of external body and the NCARB people are not democratically elected and the original AIA, like in the 19th century, excluded women and people of color and like it is a body that inherently like began in a place where licensure was like an exclusive territory. So like this this assumes that one buys into the process of licensure, what you're saying. Do you know do you know Maybe that didn't come out in a coherent fashion. I'm just saying no, like, licensure is, is inherently an issue, one that like the general public should not be forced to reckon with, but one that as architects like we right. should think about yeah. coherently well, and cogently. The reason why we get licensed is ostensibly for the health, safety, and welfare of the public, right? Mm. This is what, what they, they always say and, and repeat ad nauseum. But the way that I see licensure and understand it now, especially as someone going through the process, is, is, is it's really an institution designed to reinforce like the kind of status quo of how architecture operates Um, you know like you go through architecture school and then you have to work for three years and then they 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 shove the status quo and how things are done down your throat and then they test you on how it tastes right so it it better taste good otherwise you're not going to get a license (laughs) like uh so uh, you know it's kind of no wonder why architecture is kind of a little bit behind the times when it comes to adopting technology and new ways of doing things, et cetera, um, because everything is about a way of doing things built around how we've always done things mm. um, and, and not really not not enough about the actual health, safety and welfare, more about uh, reinforcing kind of ways of working. Um, that, that's how I understand it. Maybe it's a little cynical, but. Well, I think it's um, it. It is a way to kind of protect architects' jobs too, right? Like that is yeah. that is what the professionalization of architecture is doing more than protecting the self safety, health, safety, and welfare of the public. It's projecting or protecting our jobs. Whereas, uh, I think if that if some of those restrictions were loosened up, there might be um, we might actually end up with better buildings. Like we come. We have so many people that come to our practice saying like, oh, I have building violations. I need to get these fixed. I need an architect to do them. When really like what they need to do is quite simple. So like getting an architect to make a drawing to give to the building department is just like an extra hurdle that is actually delaying making those kind of repairs that need to be done um, yeah, rather we, than speeding them up. We think about like that, the, the kind of problems like what happened in Oakland or yeah, the many people who come to us who have do need a licensed architect in terms of like the bureaucratic process of the city, but do not really need an arch- licensed architect in the scope of work that they're doing. And so like, are there a collection of homes, buildings, and some properties which are not up to code, which could be safer, which could be healthier, which could be like better for the people who live in them, if those people weren't forced to hire architects who like, we can't take a job on for too little money because like we carry insurance, like we have to kind of like oversee this stuff, like our professionalization costs money. But right. like could there be a person who has a lot of expertise in porches who could like help you with your falling down porch that doesn't have to be like a licensed architect whose time costs too much money and makes their services like kind of prohibitive to the rest of the world? I mean, and also like could there be a broader spectrum of architects who work at a different range of fees who aren't like forced to kind of like mobilize for such a large fee that could make um, access to good design more democratic. I mean, those are questions that we have. 
Yeah, yeah. I share those. I uh, sometimes I think about you know license could be provisional, right? Where yeah. instead of having to go through this whole process that's so negative, you know, you could you could have a kind of temporary license when you graduate that says I have some expertise here, but my drawings will be double checked, right? <laughs> or or piecemeal licensure, yeah. kind of like what you were talking about. So anyway, let's let's go to a break here, and when we come back, we'll have some more questions from the mailbag. <laughs> Welcome back to Buildings on Air. We're still here in our mailbag segment where we answer questions about architecture with uh, Ann Louie and Craig Greshke of Future Firm. And now we're joined in the studio by uh, the nicest guy in Bridgeport, Zeb Rivera. <laughs> we need some rap air horns, Logan. <laughs> I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Put that up. Put, eat that mic. Oh, my gosh. Like this? Yeah, like that. You got it. Awesome. Well, so Zeb, uh, Zeb, you are you are an artist, mm-hmm. and in, and you live in the neighborhood, Bridgeport community of the future, and uh, your day job, you you spend a lot of time in the loop. I drive the city. For <laughs> you sure. drive the city without a doubt. Yeah, so I'm in and out of the buildings <laughs> that you all talk about. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, because we we're always you know we're always at the bar talking about architecture and buildings and 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 uh, you know as an artist and someone who's in and out of these buildings. You always ask the best questions, so I wanted to get you with with Han and Craig here uh, to to talk about some of these buildings in the loop. I mean, I know you've you've asked me. We've talked about like planned obsolescence in buildings. Oh my gosh, yes, we have. Yeah. yeah. Um. So that's Wolf Point. Let's talk about Wolf Point. Yeah, Wolf yeah. Point. Mm-hmm. What's going on at Wolf Point? New, <laughs> new Brand apartment new. towers, right? Glassy, shiny, probably yeah. very yeah. expensive. You don't like them. I love them. You do love them. Ah. That one building that is like the one building that's oh the the new office yeah. tower yeah. that's right by the train tracks. Yeah, mm. the one that's really so it's there's really two of them actually that oh, just yeah, went up this sides. year. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's really thin mm-hmm. at the bottom, and then like the building part of it starts mm. on like the fourth fourth floor. Mm. Uh, so tell me everything. Start from the Sh- beginning. Chicago's I want to know it. favorite architecture critic uh, just wrote an extended piece about the one on the north side of lake avenue which has the kind of arch at the bottom of right it. And, the, and it reflects the water so yeah. nice yeah. the the arch though is some sort of structural mechanism because the metro tracks run underneath that site along the river so that building is kind of straddling i think multiple layers of train tracks right um, so it is like a structural move at the top that is then reflected by a non-structural move up at the mm. top yeah, that's interesting because that's that's the hidden secret of Chicago, right? And and you know this if, if you've ever been to Lower Wacker, hmm. the city is is kind of built on a layer of air, mm. right? Like uh, the streets are all over top of railroad tracks and all kinds of stuff. So a lot of the buildings they're not actually sitting on the ground; they're kind of straddling this underground infrastructure yeah. that's that's hidden, which is kind of amazing. Well, they are actually sitting on the ground. Well, right? eventually, they're <laughs> yeah, they're they're not they're not buildings on air. <laughs> <laughs> Ann, Ann and I went on a uh, helicopter tour of Chicago for Ann's birthday like two years ago. Because It was really new, romantic. Okay. The, <laughs> Give us a break. The new heliport is just like up Halstead from Bridgeport. It's at the Orange Line station. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. And uh, <laughs> the helicopter pilot who was giving us this like great tour of Chicago told us that uh, Lake Point Tower could be built east of Lakeshore Drive because it wasn't sitting on the ground and instead was sitting on columns that held it off the ground because you can like see one layer of exposed yeah. 
exposed columns at we, the ground floor. We gave a catastrophic eye roll because, like, <laughs> of course, all buildings touch the ground in a series of columns. And it's not like they whisk the thing by the building department, like, oh, these series of dots, like, they do not hold a 60-story tower above. Yeah. But, but it's it, like a map. It's a map. <laughs> yeah, but it's freaky because this is what we talk a lot about at the bar, right? It's mm-hmm. like these buildings look like they shouldn't or they shouldn't be mm-hmm. standing up. But that's kind of how all buildings are. It's, yeah. it's a miracle that anything stands up. So do we get to ask you what what the most interesting Chicago building you've been in? You, if you've been in every oh, building yeah. in the loop? like I've been in a bunch. Um, do you go to the top or do you just drop things off at the base? No, I go, I go up. Mm. Um, Hancock Tower is interesting. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you get off at the 44th floor and there's a grocery store. Mm. What? On the 44th floor of the Hancock Tower. I had no idea. Because no, Han- that's legit. It's a grocery <laughs> store. Hancock was Because why would they... Why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a grocery store on the 44th floor of the Hancock Tower. On the resident... No, it's like a, a real... Is thing. it like a Whole Foods or a Jewel? I don't know. I don't know what it is. <laughs> I don't shop there. I just... <laughs> Like I wonder if vegetables taste fresher when they when they have that kind of altitude. <laughs> no, I just think something it's, about like the air. it's yeah. the one building that has a grocery store in the middle of the mm. like. Well, Marina that, City has one at the base because I mean these yeah. buildings like Hancock. There was a dream that it was going to be kind of like vertical city, right? That you could go there, you could live mm-hmm. there, you could work there, you could shop there. Like there's this great kind oh, of. This is what I um, want to know about. Yeah, like, like what? Like, sorry, our people. Like there's yeah. a there's a great Lewis Skidmore article from the 30s, like the Office Building of Tomorrow, which is this kind of like mm-hmm. you know early modern dream that like you could just go into Hancock and you would be everything there. Like the modern man, you might come down to like be in the green area at the base, but otherwise you could like live, workshop. To everything. I mean, Marina City has that dream a little bit too, like that you park there, you shop there, there's a restaurant there, and you live there. Uh, though I don't know if like Marina anybody City is really lives there. Yeah. What do you like about like Marina that. City, though? Um, it's an enclosed space. You know what I mean? Like, mm. it's beautiful. Sorry. Um, <laughs> it's where they live is like inside. Inside of it, it's open. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, it's a pretty remarkable. You know, I think with this, with the smaller, with those skyscrapers, especially mm-hmm. the Hancock, I always get freaked out by the skyscraper spiders. Do you guys know about this? So this is a really weird uh, phenomenon in, in Chicago and a few other cities, but mostly here, where there's like a whole ecosystem of spiders that mm. have been blow- that have been blown up by the updrafts by the skyscrapers, and they just live on the outside of these like mm. 50, 60 stories up. So if you go to the Hancock Center at certain times in the year, they'll just be all like spiders over all the windows on the outside. And oh, that's weird. like just where they hang out and live. So if you're a window washer for the Hancock building, you have to both be not scared of heights and also not, not scared, scared of spiders. spiders. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Which I, I always got really freaked out by that. Yeah. So is that, and one, what's your what's your favorite building besides Hancock? Like, what's your, I know you spend a lot of time in the lobbies. What do, what which what lobby do you like? Lobbies are interesting. Uh, uh, the building that I like a lot, and this is probably cliche, but I I do like um, the uh, <laughs> sorry. I like the building that you can touch the the blocks of. Oh, the Tribune Tower. Tribune Tower. Tribune Tower. Yeah. 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 Um, I love that. I don't know why. I just That's, do. Yeah. 
I I have a question about that building. Go ahead. How how are they getting all of those pieces of other buildings? <laughs> like. It, it's like Buckingham Palace is on there. Like, did right. they go the to Buckingham Palace and be like, on "Can there. I have a small, a small chunk?" Yeah. Like, I wonder if it's real or is this some sort of elaborate like, myth, elaborate fiction? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and it's it's like yeah, because for the, for those of you who are listening and maybe not from Chicago, <laughs> this is a building where they've literally it's a, it's like a granite block building, and they put blocks of other buildings in between the other stones. So it's like a building museum that's a building itself. So do you guys wild. touch those stones? Like I touch them. Like I go there and I just like yeah, put my hand on get it. Get the good energy. And I feel like wow, was I there? No. <laughs> well, well, it's it's funny because this it has a history. I think of the the architectural grand tour. Mm-hmm. So mm. all, these old architects, especially you know, it used to be a very sort of gentlemanly profession. And architects from America and England would kind of spend a long time going. Uh, throughout Italy and Greece and and seeing these famous buildings and and drawing them and and that's how they would learn and I think they they would often take the building right take mm-hmm. parts of the building and I think that's probably how a lot of those pieces ended up and especially like the Tribune with its Gothic style I forget who the architect was but I, I bet you it was someone who was who had who went on a grand tour had that in the back of their mind or something but they add new ones they do add new ones i I mean there's like contemporary there's a piece of the berlin wall i mean i like that i i like the idea that this is like some sort of elaborate hoax that like (laughs) a few guys like went down to bridgeport like got a range of rocks and like "Hmm, this one like this could be the great wall of china like i will put it in i don't know maybe we need some forensic archaeology on that building to see if they're real or if it's real right (laughs) right right? i think that like did somebody like fedex them a piece of the great wall of china like that also seems somewhat unbelievable. We'll have to do like a, a buildings on air investigation yeah, and yeah. see if we can find the contractor or, or person from the Tribune Tower who does that mm. and, and see if we can get them on the show. Do, do new ones I appear? think it's legit. I want to believe it's legit. <laughs> Seriously, like otherwise then what's the point? You know? <laughs> yeah. I guess, well, do you, do you feel it when you touch it? Do you feel it? If, if yeah, you, yeah, I do. <laughs> I want to be in Shard's Cathedral or whatever. That, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Pyramids of Giza, yeah. Like sure. if only you could teleport. Like you push yeah, it and then feel it. you like, appear there. I love that building, for sure. That'd be nice. And the lobby is never going to change. You talked about like planned obsolescence with glass buildings. Yeah. That lobby. It's a beautiful lobby. And the Tribune Tower is it's all, not going to change. It's, wood, it's got quotes wood, all right? over in the inside. Yeah. Yeah. That's Isn't there a wood ceiling in that I think lobby? there's a wood ceiling, yeah. I remember. That's awesome. And and Zeb, you're also a mural artist, right? Yeah, I've, yeah. I've done a few. So murals. you have a, you have an interesting relationship <laughs> to buildings. <laughs> Do you, so yeah, like I'm I'm curious as an artist. Maybe this is too abstract of a question for you, um, but but like you know. You kind of, as a mural artist, have to have a real sense of, of like walls and construction and, 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 mm. and architecture. Sometimes they call it like habitus in, in architectural theory, right? Like mm. it's habitus. Yeah. Um, so, like, how, how do you process that? It's probably more of a gut instinct or. It's difficult to paint a mural on yeah. any wall, actually. <laughs> Brick sucks up the paint, you know? Yeah. Um, I did a mural on 63rd and Woodlawn. There's a bike shop over there, and it's just a brick wall. No, it's not a brick wall. It's a concrete wall, but it had the weird, like, um, pebbles in it or whatever. It's like old 
concrete. Yeah. And yeah, that's tough. <laughs> I, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Like, what I guess this is a quote, another like what is an architect? If we want a mural in our building, what's like the best surface that we can give a, a mural artist to work with? Um, just the flattest, smoothest, smoothest surface that you can. Yeah. That's so what like we want. Renzo piano level yeah. concrete finish. <laughs> um, if it's inside, it's definitely like nice, smooth, you know, um, I don't know. Word. Yeah. Do you have any other, do you have any other building questions? Things, what do you, what do you always think about when you're driving around the loop? I love driving the city. Um, vistas. Let's talk about like how things look like. Because oh, yeah. a building is not just the building. It's like how you approach it. So there's several buildings around the city that I, like, love driving into. Yeah, like so, which ones? Yeah. Um, mercantile mm. building. Yeah. If you go on LaSalle, like, you're driving south on LaSalle. Yeah. And you drive, like, on into that, like, it just framed. And there's a statue on top. Yeah, because I, uh-huh. I think I think this is something that we've talked about before too, right? Did we? But yeah, <laughs> I don't know. maybe. But like, so so the way that the city's all gridded out, the mm-hmm. the uh, these grids run continuously. It's part of the Jeffersonian grid. So when you have a kind of building that's at the end of a street, that's like a really rare condition in Chicago. Like Trump. Like Trump. Trump <laughs> has it too. Yes. Yeah. He. Yeah. It's anyway. well sighted. <laughs> yeah. For sure. I'll, I'll give that building mm-hmm. that. Yeah, we talked with Jeff Roberts last episode about oh. about the Trump sign. Yeah, um, folks can go give that a listen if they're curious. Uh, but then, yeah, the Board of Trades, another one. But I always give the example of Sugar Shack <laughs> on 26th Street in our in our mm. fair neighborhood of Bridgeport at the end of Low. Yeah. Yeah. That's We've way better about than that. Trump Tower. <laughs> <laughs> that dessert place on 26th Street. Oh, that we keep meaning to go to. <laughs> yeah. It's a vista on the, on the scale of, of Trump Tower if you live in the community of the future. <laughs> so Trump Tower is interesting because you can, like, if you are driving north on Clark, it's beautiful. Yeah. If you see it from Lakeshore Drive, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's It's just there. You know what I mean? Like, you can see it from all these weird angles. And from Wabash. That's where we see it. Yeah. 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 Okay. Looking down Wabash. Word. Yeah, well. uh, Yeah, actually, Wabash is the one. Sorry. Yeah, so I think uh, we've got another segment coming up, so Mm. we're going to take it to a break. Thanks for uh, joining us on the mailbag, Craig and Zeb. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Welcome back to Buildings on Air here on Lumpen Radio. We're here with our next guest, Shoda Vashkumate. How did I, man, I've known you for so many years yeah. and I still can't pronounce mm-hmm. your last name. It's, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> so Shoda, uh, you are here uh, to tell us something about environmentalism. So, uh, you know, as I, as I mentioned, Shoda and I have known each other for a long time and we're always giving you stick about uh, being a, a hippie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, Shoda and I have known each other for many, many years and um, we went on a road trip actually a few years back um, and you were doing some research for this piece that was in the Pigeon issue 18. Pigeon, for those of you who don't know, is the journal of the Princeton School of Architecture. And uh, I don't know, should, what, what were you researching? What were you trying to get at? Um, I think um, I was kind of um, following up this uh, question about 
um, the aesthetics of the landscape and what that really has meant to architects historically, um, which, you know, in the easiest case has been, uh, like, giving us an idea of, like, the site and, like, what the kind of landscape that the building is placed into without ever really um, questioning the kind of material conditions that that approaches. So, um, you know, on a certain level, there's always the question of, like, this thing sits on this kind of ground and what kind of building must it be to uh, sort of make it uh, work and kind of make it uh, sustain itself over time, uh, not necessarily with respect to sustainability, but just kind of... Uh, uh, an aesthetic project of like this thing looks like it belongs here and this thing looks out of place and this looks like a city and this looks like uh, nature. Um, so I think we, we were kind of going all over um, the Midwest and one of the interesting destinations that we arrived at was the uh, uh, quarry of the Indiana Limestone Company near Bloomington. Um, Which we and, definitely uh, did not trespass into. <laughs> no, no, no. It was... Uh, it was, you know, it was basically a park. It was a site of environmental <laughs> restoration, as they called it. Right. Um, so this was kind of a disused uh, quarry that uh, in the 30s, it had been the site where the kind of facade for the Empire State Building had been excavated from. Um, and since then, um, other the, the, the Pentagon was apparently also excavated from there. And kind of a number of uh, sort of important and uh, very architecture-y uh, manifestations of piles of rocks <laughs> so as uh, as this thing kind of got excavated um they decided at a certain point to stop you know the um the sort of economics of digging up these rocks stopped making sense at a certain point and they uh had to move to a site kind of on the other side of the mountain uh, what was interesting was that the the idea of kind of stopping a quarry um entails all of these legal ramifications of like what the the guys doing the digging must do and it uh, it basically translates to something called uh, environmental restoration, which uh, in a lot of cases um, entails uh, kind of cleaning up soils, uh, dealing with pollution, uh, remediating it for kind of public enjoyment, what have you. Uh, but in this case, it basically means uh, leaving it alone to uh, to be basically accepted into the, the wilderness of the site, as it were, kind of a primeval idea that uh, our, our friend William Cronin, as you mentioned earlier, um, attributes to an aesthetic of like the wilderness developed from the American West before anybody was really out there um, and before really anybody was out there to see and document it the way it actually was. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, what you're talking about really is this kind of m myth of a divide between urban and rural. And I think that's kind of a, a topic on everyone's radar right now for politics. Um, and uh, uh, a lot of architects are talking about this, too, in terms of, you know, we concentrate on cities and, and built things. And maybe we've, you know, done too little um, in the countryside uh, and haven't thought about that enough, which I, I think also has kind of gross um, um, overtones of paternalism <laughs> mm -hmm. um but but i think a lot of what you talk about and what you research is, is and, and cronin too for that matter is is about how this myth is uh, of, of a divide is, is 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 really exactly that it's a myth um the uh, there's a there's a quote that cronin likes to to bring up as raymond nate uh, raymond williams um he, he said the, the the something like the idea of nature contains an extraordinary amount of human history um and so like the 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 question of like how much architects are actually involved with these larger landscapes and within the kind of infrastructural networks that make these things up um, is maybe something that we haven't like dealt with as a discipline and kind of haven't dealt with in practice, <clears throat> but really I think have kind of huge uh, responsibility and like effects 
uh, on the built environment. So the like that history of the dimensional lumber mills and the kind of profusion from uh, kind of urban Chicago and the decisions that were being made on a very kind of um, isolated and like local scale kind of proliferating into a huge uh, like aesthetic of uh, the barns and the wilderness and kind of uh, the rural um, isn't really all that different from much more uh, like modern systems of feedback that happen going the other way perhaps. So decisions made now in the countryside and in the suburbs affecting the city and affecting um, how the city is viewed versus how the landscape has once been viewed. Yeah, for sure. And and so how how do you uh how do you shine a light on those systems, right? Mm-hmm. Like in in that opposition. What are what are the tools what are the tools at our disposal? Um I, I think I think for architects um maybe the kind of uh like didactic uh issue um it, it's been that like architects don't really build things that we just were responsible for the drawings. Um for for like a lot of things it doesn't matter because it's just uh figuring out the kind of correct material systems and like correct specifications and like correct uh, um, <clears throat> structures to represent. But for something like uh, nature and for something like uh, kind of confusing ideas about what actually is natural and what's kind of man-made and what's built, um, the question of like how we draw becomes really important. So uh, the the history of like an architect going and starting with a blank page and kind of imagining the building and imagining the kind of grand work um, you know, like I think usually it's kind of come straight from <clears throat> from the designer's uh, mind with maybe some reference to kind of um, their history and the things they've learned and the things they uh, understand about the place uh, in which they're designing. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's always a sort of empty space that gets filled in with the design, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as these things get translated to, to like building practices, this uh, the, the as-designed thing becomes the as-built thing. And that kind of reinforces the idea that some of uh, some of the kind of matter that's in the world, right? Like the thing that's in the landscape, there might be a house in it, and there might be something that's not a house. Um, and the kind of categories we apply to these things uh, eventually come down to like what is built and what is not built. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm really kind of interested in bringing this question to like a more architectural um, audience, or maybe any audience, but maybe especially to an architectural one that uh, a lot of kind of environmental historians and environmentalists and, uh, well, scientists, as, you know, um, as we're finding out more and more, uh, they they haven't really shared this distinction between, like, uh, necessarily the world of people and the world of cities and the world of uh, environmental forces and landscape. Um, and so, uh, like, um, Aldo Leopold has been my kind of key reference for this. Um, for uh, those of you who don't know, he's a... Um, he was an environmentalist um, who wrote in the 1950s, uh, well, he wrote in the 1930s, it was published in the 50s and kind of became a, a sort of huge work for the emerging environmentalist movement in the 1960s. Um, and he he wrote this uh, book called The Sand County Almanac, um, and in it he sort of entailed this, uh, he explained this idea of the land ethic, uh, which, you know, for uh, kind of a simple reading, it's like really kind of an incredibly poetic and like well-written statement about how we should be responsible for like where we live and we can kind of watch out for the side effects of our actions and things like this. Uh, but the really kind of crucial thing for architecture is the way he's uh, using the term ethic. Um, so he, you know, I'm always saying love the land and he described the love of the land as the kind of expansion of, uh, of our consciousness of what kind of constitutes it. So he said it should kind of include 
the soils, the plants, the rivers, all of these things that, uh, you know, are necessarily a part of what um, architecture is and also what defines the landscape, uh, but they haven't really been represented as such. So the ethic that he talks about um, uh, doesn't doesn't only mean like ethical questions of like what's right and wrong, but really the question of what is kind of included in our conception of the ethic. Mm-hmm. Um, so the like the, the ethic maps to the community, and the community is in turn uh, only kind of as well understood as the images and like the mediatic systems that uh, let us see it. So you know, really, at the end of the day, it's like if we can't. Uh, see this thing and understand it by the kind of images and like vocabulary that we're that we're using to talk about it. Um, how can we actually appreciate and kind of be responsible for, uh, sure. for the work we do in that context? Yeah, no, it makes sense. Uh, and I and I gotta say to everyone, you're listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. This is Buildings on Air, and we're talking with Shoda Vashkamante about the land ethic. So yeah, no, I, I think uh, I think that's interesting, and and so really, what you're talking about is using systems of representation, drawing, whether they're drawing on a computer, drawing by hand, but trying to expand our our, our imaginary with uh, with these tools that we have as architects to uh, incorporate these larger environmental systems. Is that right? Is that a yeah, fair no, characterization? I mean, uh, yeah, and, and I think it's kind of maybe bigger than just. Uh, uh, sort of drawing on paper mm. or like kind of drawing and image making, but also kind of about cultural narratives and about uh, the sort of fictions and the myths and like the the ideas that we really ascribe to these things that uh, are more complex than like that's wilderness and that's existed forever and mm-hmm. this is a building and it's only been here for 30 years. Right. So, so and are, are you pro, pro-myth pro building then? <laughs> is, that, is that the like a pro and environmental sort of myth? Or narrative? We can get rid of the myth building, right? That's sort of uh, something that, that people do uh, in any kind of like sort of uh, cultural project. Uh, but but it's, it's important to recognize the myth as the myth, right? So, you know, uh, the, the kind of common understanding of the wilderness you know the the sort of image that like comes to our mind right now as we're talking about it, and as people are listening to it, is it's sort of like a vista of a mountain or like a forest, yeah. Yellowstone, kind of, Ansel like, Adams. It's, a, it's it's like a, a, a pristine wilderness is mm-hmm. sort of what everyone goes to, and and you know that's kind of a, a totally like historically situated way of thinking about it, right? It comes straight from uh, like landscape painting and landscape photography from the 19th century uh, and more specifically from kind of uh, the national parks uh, before they were national parks. And so um, I think it's it's a matter of understanding the history of where those things come from and the kind of politics that are attached to them um, and then sort of thinking about how we're representing them today and how we're thinking of uh, something as being uh, sort of part of a city or maybe even on another level as being sustainable or as uh, being maybe irresponsible. Um, Right. You know, you can see the same thing with kind of uh, you, what you guys discussed as sustainability, that you have something that kind of looks green and it really entails these, uh, like, connotations of, like, technology and of responsibility and environmentalism. Uh, but at the end of the day, they sort of um, have much more to do with, like, building structures and, like, project delivery and building systems than they do with uh, with sort of environmentalism. Right. Um, and the way we think about like this thing has so and so lead points, which kind of uh, you know exist within these systems that qualify buildings yeah. as being sustainable or not. Maybe uh, explain lead for a non-architectural audience. Uh, sure. So so lead is a uh, 
Um, they're, they're a company and a certification system for uh, kind of accrediting uh, sustainable credentials to buildings. Um, so this uh, kind of breaks down into a number of categories, some of which have to do with the practices of how it's built, um, and some of them have to do with the design, but a bunch of them have to do with uh, kind of materials um, in terms of like what they come from and what they are. Um, and it really boils down to sort of uh, key points that have to be uh, met by the designer at the stage of the project's kind of uh, conception and drawing. And then by the time it gets built, it sort of is kind of uh, kept track of. And at the end of the day, you get a sort of seal that says, you know, you've done a good job. Yeah, and this we is we a... checked this many sustainability boxes. Yeah, yeah. And, and the like you know that's actually like really good and i think it's kind of uh, done done you know some good things but the the kind of uh, confusion it's created i think has had to do with sort of what the you know what you're in it for and like whether the the thing that we're doing is kind of trying to check the sustainability boxes or to sort of rethink the larger frameworks of like what has made buildings so uh kind of irresponsible and kind of environmentally uh disingenuous over the past century um, and, you know, if that has to do with the kind of infrastructural systems that, that, that we're thinking about, then is it really correct to, like, be, still be trying to solve the issues through the same infrastructural systems that have created them? Right. I mean, because there, there's still sort of lots of abstractions that happen with LEED, right? It's this kind of, uh, and I guess by what I mean by that is, you know, it's it's just, it's symbols. It's this green roof means green, right? Uh, and and this little this little uh, solar panel that we put on top of the roof, you know, is a, is a stand-in for, for some kind of, you know, for an ethic, really, um, and and uh, a kind of goodwill. But but those things aren't, uh, they're, they're, they're certainly good, but they're not super effective. So I, I wonder if what you're talking about is really constructing a, a different set of abstractions, right? Um, or some, or, or ways in which people can plug into the larger systems. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people talk about now how, and I think people always talk about this, right? It seems like every generation is, is looking at the next one and saying, you know, oh, like they're, they're not even self-centered, but, <laughs> but it, it does seem true in the way that we think about sustainability, where the buildings are very much focused on themselves, right. And, and, and finding, finding products and, and, even when they do think about a kind of complete life cycle of a building material, um, it's 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 sort of just wrapped up in like mm, you know car- the carbon right carbon quantities and things like this. Um, and and so like what what other criteria are there right like what what how should we be thinking about this uh, beyond an individual building like what what is it what is it that we need to be doing. Um, I, I, like the, there's kind of so much of the like logics uh, upon which uh, kind of standard systems like that are crafted on like they 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 really refer to sort of a, like an existing body of knowledge right that it's like we we have this sort of big book that says how many uh, how many trees get chopped down for this product mm. and how many uh, points you can score for something else and and I think the the stability of that you know um, as kind of uh, useful as that is for uh, conveying the idea that like something is uh, um, is sort of what it appears to be or it is uh, it performs how it appears to um, I think that that kind of really gets undermined when you look at the uh, sort of material specificities of it right so you can say 
you know, this thing comes from uh, from 500 miles away and thus meets the meets a certain criteria we have. Uh, but you know, within that 500 miles, you can uh, sort of you know uh, get it shipped down a river that takes no energy, or you can uh, drive it up a mountain, or you know have people haul it up a mountain or something. Um, and those uh, those really kind of uh, throw out the window like a lot of the standards that we create uh, because of how they can be uh, manipulated in certain cases, but in other cases, like don't necessarily um, have a um, as kind of a standard of a situation as the like the definition calls for. Um, so I, I think really it's kind of a maybe it is a generational one. You know, I guess we, we can say that like we're going to do it right this time or something <laughs> like that. Uh, but you know, on a on a sort of more uh, forward looking level, I think it's got something to do with technology and with being able to keep track of these standards and kind of keep them alive as documents rather than as sort of. Uh, statements in law that have to be followed to the letter. Um, so, you know, like, it's not necessarily that you have to meet this meet this box, but, you know, you have to have a certain body of data backing up your building and your practices uh, that demonstrate that you do what you do or that it kind of uh, lives up to the spirit of the of the sustainable project. Right. No, that makes sense. And, you know, one, one thing that you always talk about too, is the the need for a total ecological consciousness. Yeah, totally consciousness. <laughs> and I think we've had enough conversations, so I think I know. I think I know what that means, maybe. But sometimes even I'm not sure. But I'm, I'm wondering <laughs> what you mean by total ecological consciousness. I I think if I may take a stab, that oh, it's man, uh, <laughs> that it, that it's it's somehow using using technology and and kind of. Uh, uh, a, a larger socio-cultural set of ethics to where everyone is kind of connected to these larger environmental systems um, all the time. So, so that somehow you you feel in uh, emotionally, intellectually, physically uh, a connection um, to the quarry, right? If you're if you're in the Tribune Tower, right, which I think is maybe one of the buildings. Funny, everything's yeah, connected, the, right? Rocks found up. Yeah, everything. Everything is everything, right? <laughs> so, 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 you know, if we're talking about the Tribune Tower, which came from this quarry in Indiana that we visited, that we would somehow have that knowledge, and it and it would make us sort of better stewards of the environment and better citizens and everything else. It's very utopian, but that's that's kind of how I how I think about it when when you I, say total ecological consciousness. I, 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 I think it, it's utopian, but I, you know, like like to some degree, the the total. Uh, is it's it's like a little bit tongue in cheek maybe that like we know this kind of totality is something that uh, that sort of all these utopian projects are striving for, but that is also what like undermines their uh, their sort of day to day success. Um, and uh, you, you know uh, the 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 '60s had like so much uh, enthusiasm and like excitement for like these kind of mediatic and cybernetic projects, right? That we were supposed to be. Um, you know the 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 organism that wears uh, that wears its nerves on its hide and has like its brains outside of its skull. There are a lot of like crazy descriptions um, of how kind of access to information and like access to media technologies uh, would change the way we re- relate to one another. Um, and you know, extending that, they also talked a lot about how it would change relationships between the city and the the sort of countryside, or like uh, between. Uh, uh, 
the America and the USSR during the Cold War. It was this kind of uh, larger project of like cooperation by ways of representational technologies and like language. Uh, so, you know, as as interesting as that is on a sort of cultural and like global scale, uh, like I think architecture has really like very kind of concrete and like simple lessons to learn from it. Mm. Uh, you know, such as like taking uh, all of the information that we have about about a site that we build in and kind of um, starting with that as the basis of uh, of like a design project rather than the empty page. Um, you know, uh, BIM technologies, which are these kind of protocols for um, uh, you know, enabling architects to keep track of their materials and sort of expenses during uh, project delivery uh, can just as easily be flipped around uh, towards the the design side of things. To where, you know, it's uh, it's not just how many columns and how many bricks do I need, but uh, sort of how many uh, you know cubic yards of this kind of soil or cubic yards of this kind of rock are on site or on some other site um, that we can uh, sort of use to. Uh, you know, materially used, but also used to like inform uh, where the where the design of the project is headed. Um, the, you know, uh, at, at one point, like there was kind of a very clear conception of like what the, uh, uh, what like the urban shadow of a city was. That is like the um, resources and kind of uh, material reach of a city, like where it got its energy and its power and its bricks and its uh, chopped wood from. Uh, but uh, you know the infrastructural networks of you know the last uh, maybe 20 or 30 years have uh, confused us um, because you know it, it still appears that there's kind of a population concentration kind of a cultural uh, concentration attributed to cities but there's not necessarily that kind of reliance that once existed uh, between between the two right. and the dynamics aren't really as apparent as they once were um, so you know I, I, I think it's a sort of huge project to like try to map that and try to understand all of it uh, but it's something to kind of keep in uh, in the back of your mind for architects who are sort of you know drafting up a house or drafting up a wall or a garage. <laughs> for sure, yeah. I mean, I, in in terms of that divide, I always tell people it's like if you if you start in the center of a city and you keep driving, right? Like, where does the city end? Like, where when are you no longer in city? And and you you probably won't be able to tell <laughs> yeah because yeah. because these things are they're they're gradients right and, and and we are connected and even even here in the heart of bridgeport we're connected to to the wider territory um and yeah but i, I man i love total ecological consciousness <laughs> it's like it's like cybernetic uh, these cybernetic utopians meet uh, meet dialectical materialism that's, uh, that's the other way in which I yeah, think yeah, and, and 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 the Western, you know, communitarians, you <laughs> guys, for sure. <laughs> well, uh, thanks, Shoda. I think we're going to go to a break now, and we'll yeah, we'll be talking. So we'll be, yeah, thanks. Thanks for talking about environmentalism, and I think we'll talk about utopias. I think we talked about utopias a little bit. I think next episode we'll have you back uh, with some of our other friends, and and we'll chat utopia. Uh, yeah, utopia gang. Yeah, utopia Fine. gang. All right. Later. Welcome back to Buildings on Air. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn, and we are joined now by guests Peggy Deemer and Killian Riano, co-founders of the Architecture Lobby. How are you guys doing? Good. Oh, yeah, excellent. Doing well, thank you. And you guys are you guys are Skyping in all the way from New York City. Thanks for uh, thanks for taking the time. 
And I, I should mention too, I'm a, I'm a part of the architecture lobby along with Peggy and Killian. And we're actually broadcasting from the co-prosperity sphere here on Lumpen Radio, where many months ago, we actually had a, a weekend extravaganza called Reworking Architecture during the Chicago Architecture Biennial. It was a kind of uninvited addition to the biennial. So uh, maybe, Killian, maybe you can tell folks uh, what that was about, what we were getting up to, because I think it was a very sort of formational event for the architecture lobby and for uh, the kind of activism. It was a good template for the kind of activism that we hope to do um, and expand on in the coming year. Uh, well, first of all, thanks a lot for uh, having us. Uh, it's uh, so nice to, to we, we get to chat with each other often, but it's nice to do it in this in this format. Uh, and thank you for the Co-Prosperity Sphere for having hosted us. It was an incredible event. And so many great folks in Chicago, uh, including Kiefer, really stepped up to make it a great, great, great event. Uh, but the, the event itself was two days uh, in which we took the 10-point manifesto uh, that, that was created over close to a year with a group of people uh, pointing 10 things, 10 specific things that the architecture lobby thought should be changed within architect the architectural practice in order to have uh, better labor, uh, la better conditions for, for, for architects. Uh, and what we did at the Code of Prosperity Sphere uh, was that we, we created one short scene, a little sketch, a little... Uh, uh, a little play per, uh, for each one of the manifesto points. And then uh, an everyday uh, event happening at a firm. So an unpaid intern being asked to stay later, uh, a firm owner that's being asked to design something for way well below market rate, uh, and uh, uh, architects not knowing exactly about labor rights and labor history in the United States. And we did a little play. And then we uh, asked the audience to come up and actually replay it with their own experiences. The idea here was to take our 10-point manifesto, which seems a little bit bigger, and to break it down and begin to look at things that the architecture lobby can work on, things that we can do, uh, through the experiences of our members, uh, and what what uh, and that is something that has been a consistent thing for the architecture lobby, which is to look at big systematic problems and issues through the lens of very specific experiences of uh, of of our members. Yeah, for sure. And maybe one thing we'll do for this segment, talking to you guys, since, since you guys were so instrumental in writing the Architecture Lobby Manifesto, um, which is, you know, the kind of guiding light for, for Architecture Lobby members, I'm wondering if maybe we can actually go through those 10 points and kind of point by point uh, explain them, talk about them, um, and maybe what in the next year uh, uh, we hope to kind of do about them directly or indirectly. Um, so the first point on the manifesto of 10 is uh, enforce labor laws that prohibit unpaid internships, unpaid overtime, and refuse unpaid competitions. So just to say, this is probably the easiest um, point to make, which is just asking the profession to follow legal procedures. Um, and of course, I think we all know what the problem is here, architecture in particular kind of thrives on an idea of um, inspiration, inspiration, never really knowing when it's going to happen. We can't 
um, in any way corral or suggest that labor is a part of what we're doing, and then that shouldn't some way be regulated. And so we've all <laughs> fallen into that particular myth. We could call it a form of ideology. Um, and uh, this is just a way of raising consciousness about the fact that we're not exempt from, from legal procedures. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, what, what is the lobby, uh, what do we plan on doing about this, I think, in, in the coming year and in, and in the context of uh, our, our, our new uh, political paradigm? Um, I would just say, I mean, something that we have done for the last couple of years that we're going to continue to do is, is the pledge um, and asking uh, students who are about to um, graduate uh, and enter into the into the market, or even those who are going into summer internships, to sign a pledge saying that not only will they not work for um, illegal wages or unpaid internships, but they won't won't work for a firm that, that has those um, procedures. Um, so that that is certainly one of the things that we're going to you know continue to stress. Yeah, and, and Killian, I think in New York, there's an interesting project in the works about certification. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, along with Peggy and the whole New York chapter, uh, what we've been doing is looking at some of the best labor practices, current labor practices, uh, and making a list of the, uh, of the kind of things that we would look at at a firm having in order to, to get kind of a seal of approval of the architecture lobby. Uh, this just means that uh, these firms are, uh, have shown a track record and are making a commitment to upholding these minimal, minimal uh, le legal requirements as well as shooting for better labor right conditions. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's something that is based on something that Peggy saw at the law school at Yale, where, uh, where law firms were being, competing with each other, not only uh, to, for talent, not only on the, the, the salaries they could pay, but also the benefits and the family-friendly atmosphere of these practices. Uh, and we're hoping that in architecture, that also becomes something that, that pr prospective uh, employees, uh, workers, architects, look at that they understand that their labor doesn't, doesn't require them giving up an entire life, uh, and, that, uh, and that it becomes something that that's the, the best of architects do, that they care about the policies, they care about the way that people are hired, the way that uh, projects are administered in order to make sure that people uh, can, can live the, the life that, uh, outside of, of the work they do. Yeah, and you know, I think probably a lot of people listening who who aren't architects are maybe surprised to hear some of this. And and I think there's this um, sort of imaginary of the architect that's you know, oh, well, they're they're sort of well paid, they have cultural cachet, um, and all of these things. And and uh, kind of what we talk about is the architecture lobby is is at odds with that image. So I'm wondering if maybe you can sort of uh, talk about that, talk about what what the conditions are like and and how that might differ from. Um, you know, what the public, how the public perceives architecture. Well, I, we, I'm sure we all can contribute that in, in, from our own experience and from our own education. But um, in the background of the profession is this idea that it's a gentleman's profession and that you probably came from the class that you are serving and consequently um, had independent wealth and, and did not actually need to be making money, um, and it's not 
only that that's not the case, um, but but we have still in some way subscribed to that image of ourselves such that we won't uh, ad admit <laughs> that it's not the case and not admitting that it's not the case won't, won't, won't address it. That on top of the kind of aesthetic, artistic uh, um, aspect of architecture that makes um, everyone think that it is um, a kind of aesthetic gift that we're doing that we're fulfilled by our own aesthetic vision only adds to the um, fact that we're willing to uh, give away our, our, our work. Um, yeah, and I think that's an important point to make, um, especially in the context of the Architectural Lobby's activism, right, is that, you know, th what we're talking about is not at all a kind of return to that idea of the gentlemanly professional. So even though we talk about uh, sort of value and labor conditions and um, really what is sort of shockingly the, the lack of compensation, of appropriate compensation for architects, especially the beginning of their careers and, and students and interns, um, that it's not it's not about trying to restore that image. Uh, it's it's about trying to overcome it with something totally something something totally new. Um, but let's move on to point two of the manifesto. And this one is this one is really tricky. I think this one goes over a lot of people's heads. Uh, it's reject fees based on percentage of construction or hourly fees, and instead calculate value based on the money we save our clients or gain them. Killing, do you want to go for that? Uh, sure, uh, and and I and I will say if if it's okay with you, I'm going to package this one with number three, which is stop peddling a product buildings and focus on the unique value architects help realize through spatial services, and and I'm packaging the two, and we can talk about them separately also, but because it, I think both of them get to a similar place, which is that. Uh, uh, one of the problems uh, that we have identified through surveys, conversations, etc., in the current architectural field is that is the, the, the architect as a service provider. I, I often joke that the moment in which the architect becomes nothing but a jewelry designer, nothing, not that there's anything wrong <laughs> with jewelry designers, but we're, we're literally just selling the jewelry, the object, the thing. Uh, in, and many of... Uh, there's a limited uh, amount of, uh, of both uh, money and other kind of uh, risk that, that, can be, uh, that can be had by architects by just designing that up. Some of the most uh, successful and interesting practices today have been able to begin to think about not only how to produce a building, a hospital, a school, or whatever, but rather to use the tools and way of thinking uh, that designers have to think strategically on a larger scale. So that, uh, that for example, uh, for number two, uh, reject fees based on percentage. That means that in, not to make what we make completely dependent on that object, but rather that, for example, if the, if the building that we are proposing is, uh, includes uh, ongoing savings on energy because it's uh, innovative, uh, it has an innovative venturi effect that's going to cool the building naturally, that there's something else that good design can bring to the table, which uh, can benefit our clients for the long term, and that because of that kind of thinking, uh, architects should also make some, uh, make a little bit, that, that, that thinking should be valued. And similarly, then, for number three, the stop peddling of product, 
is that it, it moves beyond the building and it moves to uh, sometimes intangible. So, so for example, these days, I think a lot of uh, my practice as well as many others, uh, we, we may not even design the building, but we're creating the conditions by which buildings will be designed or by which clients are gonna be thinking about how to program the building or uh, or even how to uh, how to do other things outside of that and and uh, it's, a, it's it's making a claim that all these things are part of the larger architectural practice that should be identified and that architects should be compensated for and in the in the meantime it, it will put the architectural field a little bit closer to other fields that are figuring out in a new more complex uh, kind of knowledge economy how to uh, how to make money so that we stop just being the, the the mostly dudes but the dudes and gals that go and make the building the thing the object uh, but rather that we are that we can make that object make sense or uh, over the long term uh, in its in its context yeah i think that was really articulate and, I, and let me just you know add um two things on on the one side the idea is that we can really, if we enter into the discussion earlier, prove to the clients and the public that we have our skin in the game, not just to deposit an object and take a picture and run away, but, but we are interested in the long term and, and that our skin is um, truly in the game um, and, that, and that the clients should understand and trust us for that. On the other side, on, on maybe the labor side, part of what two and three are arguing for is not doing piecework. You know, basically, those forms of of delivering a product or charging for a product is piecework. And as long as we're doing piecework, we don't have interest in um, the long term employment of of our of our staff. You kind of you hire up for a job and you fire down for a job. Um, that's not a long term business proposition. Um, so it's it's it it affects the the labor side of this as well. Can, can I just mention something else because I think that that's so important because, you know, often young architects when they come out of school and, you know, they may be going to IIT or uh, SAIC or, you know, uh, schools here in the East Coast and the first thing they do is go and become cat monkeys, <laughs> uh, as we call them, as uh, they, they become drafts people and, and, uh, and that kind of object-based thing then forces these people have been trained for four, somewhere between four to eight years, I went to school for closer to eight years, um, uh, to do things that that are uh, that that almost anyone can do. This larger f way of thinking, and as Peggy was saying, and in the labor side, can actually open up people to experience new things, to really apply the things they learn uh, into new challenges uh, that that are broader than than figuring out. Um, the, the window detail, not that the window detail is not important, it's something very important to learn, but it, it moves you beyond that. So you're not stuck there for, you know, another two to three years where you could be, uh, quite honestly, providing more value for your employer and your clients. Yeah, I mean, that definitely jives with my own personal experience where, you know, I've graduated and I've spent two years mostly in Revit. And, you know, I, we always we always joke and, and kind of have conversations about my uh, Luddite tendencies. Um, but really, uh, you know, it's startling how the technology that should be enabling us 
to do these things, right? To to talk about different ways of generating value and 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 having innovative ways of monetizing knowledge work, right? Um, you know, are really used for for the other other purposes. We end up kind of becoming slaves to Revit in particular ways, and and. You know, to my mind, what and and um, you know, please please feel free to disagree. Uh, but to my mind, it's really a problem with, you know, who who what what economic and political context these technologies are being operated in, and um, you know, that's really a question about uh, the power of of labor against a, 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 an economic system that's so totalizing that wants you to be able to pump out as many projects as possible. Um, rather than using those efficiency gains or those innovations for, um, you know, slowing down and, and having some time to, to think more carefully about a problem or, or community or, or whatever, whatever it is, right? Um, so that, that's, that's how I always think about it. I'm glad you brought up the sort of CAD, CAD monkey, uh, <laughs> Killian. Yeah, I mean, just, just to say, and, you know, and Kiefer, you and I have discussion all the time about, about Revit, um, one, one of the advantages of that kind of technology is there really is a way of sharing information. Um, and sharing information can only benefit both the profession and, and our, our client. But I think what you're pointing out is, unfortunately, it's not, it's not used that way. It's, it's used just for increase of speed, efficiency, and profit making as opposed to collaboration um, and knowledge sharing, which is, which is really what it's hope um, is. So. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Uh, so... Uh, and speaking of uh, labor, uh, point number five, or no, we skipped four. We got to go back to four. Enforce wage transparency across the discipline. Peggy, Peggy maybe you can speak to that. Well, it, it, uh, it, it just is one of the side products of this kind of myth of the aesthetic um, directive of our discipline that um, we, don't, we don't know how to value it and, and consequently... Um, the arena which in sal- within which salaries are actually made in the office um, are particularly cloaked in an area of mystery. How talented are you? Are you contributing? Um, you know, do are you paid because you're willing to be there 24/7? No- nobody knows what the criteria for um, wage determination is. Um, which means that there's not only bad karma between labor and management, but particularly devastating is that there's bad karma between all the, all the workers um, because they're distrustful of each other. Um, and then it becomes a self-perpetuating system. The more distrustful you are, the less you'll talk about it. And less you'll talk about it, the more distrustful you are. So um, that's, that's a big one for um, an, a, an atmosphere that feels um, respectful and... Um, collaborative you know I, I agree with everything Peggy said and, and this always brings me back to, to a funny kind of thing which is that uh, one of the, the, the thing uh, I was in the military I was in the in the US Air Force uh, when I was uh, very young uh, and one of the things that I liked about the Air Force is that uh, all these kind of things became clear when I came back to the civilian world I began to understand that Things still had order. The orders existed. It's just they were not as clear. There were there were there was a certain amount of opaqueness there that wouldn't allow you to see these things. And that uh, so although we might not think about it, there might not be a list uh, uh, somewhere about how what a, an architect with 
two years of experience that does not quite exist, it, it, there is a range. And, and uh, the lack of transparency often ends up hurting some, some, some groups more specifically than others, including, for example, as is now well known through many, uh, the experiences of many industries, is women. Uh, women tend to pay less to, for the same job uh, uh, that if there was a, a certain amount of wage transparency, that would be harder to happen. So, so what happens is that there are standards, there are averages, there are numbers out there, but by us keeping them kind of secret and keeping this kind of idea that, the, that there's a secret uh, uh, head of the market and that the numbers are everywhere, uh, we we allow certain uh, certain numbers to go down, and, and and again, I think that this drive towards a large uh, uh, wage transparency is not only in architecture. This is kind of uh, part of a larger movement in the workplace. Uh, and I have seen an uh, anecdotal, but for example, I think it was Radio Lab or um, uh, Planet Money on NPR had a had a big uh, report on this. And one of the things that I remember so much is that they went into a tech firm which uh, instituted this the first couple of weeks after they transitioned and they made all the wage information clear, uh, a lot of people were shocked. Then people were able to have conversations about it. And then once people were at a place where everybody thought that, that it was comfortable, no one even thought about it again <laughs> because there was a certain amount, a certain, the trust had, had been put into that system in a way that people uh, believe that the, the, the firm, the, the people that they were working for had their best interest in mind. And so that uh, wage transparency, is, as I have seen, the little bit I have researched on it, the, the Economist and, uh, and other articles that I have read, seems to be a, a net plus for, for uh, firms that, that, that do that, mostly because it creates that trust uh, within the team. Yeah. So let's move on to point number five in the manifesto here, which is establish a union for architects, designers, academics, and interns in architecture and design. Uh, I would let Peggy go, go first. <laughs> Peggy. Uh, um, Kiefer, you, you're going to have to read that one again. I don't have the list in front of me. So... Um, Oh, yeah, this is the, the union point, Peggy. Establish a union for architects, designers, academics, and interns in architecture and design. Yeah. No, this, um, this is an important one, and, and, it's, and it's one that is very hotly debated within the lobby it, itself, um, which is how does one actually organize uh, the labor to um, bargain for better wages? Um, what is the means of doing that? And the most known form of that is unionization. Uh, the, the, um, in the absence of another way of bargaining, I, I think that's the go-to uh, model that, that we're talking about. Part of our conversation, you know, Kiefer and Killian, you, you know this, is whether there are um, 21st century ways of thinking about this that don't necessarily pit labor against management, um, because that's such a difficult issue with architecture, but really pit labor and management together against a neoliberal economy and, and a system that, uh, that uh, doesn't actually honor those of us who are in the 99% as opposed to 1%. Um, but it's a complex issue, but certainly unions are a model that, that um, collective bargaining um, uh, uh, would utilize. 
Yeah, certainly. Uh, the the other thing I don't know, Peggy, but also there's the Sherman Antitrust Act, which also kind of brings up some issues around unions. So I don't know if you wanted to describe that since you've been doing some research uh, research around it. Uh, yeah, no, I mean the 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 issue that Killian's referring to is that the the reason that um, the AIA gives and, I, and it's legitimate about why they don't actually as a professional organization argue in the public for higher fees um, or for standard wages is because antitrust laws prevent it. Um, and they have had consent degrees um, um, enforced on them from the anti from the um, Department of Justice um, twice. And so they have reason to be worried about it. So then one looks for uh, opportunities that are outside of the um, those that are governed by the antitrust laws and unions Unions is one of those. Unions is is um, a way that you can uh, um, argue for higher um, wages uh, um, and avoid the um, problems of antitrust. And the only thing else I will add is that that it is one of the points that is most highly contested. Just because the the, the word union conjures something up so specific for everyone. And one of the reasons, one of the things, one of the places we have landed as a as an organization is that we cannot be scared of the word union, and that unions have uh, done a lot of good for the the working people in the U.S. Uh, for using it for architects sometimes can be a little bit awkward for all the reasons we talked about. Architects are everyone from the the the, the management to the worker to the student to the professor they, because we are a different kind. However, I do like the word union, and I think there are some credible uh, groups. For example, right now, so, uh, uh, some of the most interesting unions I'm paying attention to personally are things like tenant unions mm -hmm. and other kind of unions that are beginning to organize people to fight for uh, both wages, for space, for different things, to organize, uh, collectivize, and then take action in ways that are a little bit different than the unions that we that we are used to. Uh, and there seems to be a lot of promise in that, in both uh, creating uh, uh, new forms of, of, of organization that may uh, that may in, be a, a little bit inclusive, as in, like, there are times that I'm sure there are some really bad players and bad, pe uh, bad employers out there uh, that, that are not paying their people what they should when they have the means and they have the, 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 the legal uh, responsibility to do so. But the reality is that many architects uh, the, the, in the employee uh, side, uh, having my own practice, is just uh, we're not paid all that much. So, so in a way, we also should come together to talk about strategies and ways to uh, talk about how can we uh, uh, make sure that our value is is uh, respected in the larger society. So, having settled that, I think that that one of the things that is most exciting about uh, some of the work that the architecture lobby has been doing is to think about both the traditional role of unions and and the, the, what role can those play in what we're doing, and where can we do something slightly different using a contemporary kind of political theory, political ways of organizing and seeing some of the trends that we're noticing in places like Spain where, and in Europe and Latin America where co-ops are now uh, kind of the, the way that a lot of architectural practices are working where, uh, uh, where they're, sharing, uh, they're sharing a lot of things and it's not the traditional 
a couple of big architects and then a bunch of workers underneath them. And, and that seems to be doing some, some interesting work, too. Like, the actual production of the work seems to be changing, too. Yeah, and I, I think that's did it. one of the things that makes the lobby sort of unique, uh, it, not just as an, uh, an organization of sort of uh, radical architects, but but in in the world of radicals, period, right, is that... Um, you know, we have a we have a set. We operate from a set of principles, um, and and our tactics are are less about uh, the the. We don't confuse tactics and principles. I guess is what I'm trying to say, because what what may be absolutely right and progressive for a small office, uh, for say for instance, becoming a kind of workers cooperative, um, is not really going to change what happens at say the large architecture offices here in Chicago. Um, this is a city very much dominated by large and, and medium large firms, um, and and in those contexts, uh, sort of maybe traditional unionization is absolutely more appropriate. But um, you know the the sort of collectivization and mobilization against kind of neoliberal finance is, is is number one at the top of the list. And you know one of the things that that I always also find interesting about this point specifically is that. Uh, we get into architecture for the public good, right? I think that's, or at least most people do. Um, but we usually think about the buildings as the way in which we operate on the public and in the public good. And that's, that's definitely true, but, but we forget that, they ha- that our labor has a, its kind of own agency and that through kind of building collective agencies like this, um, you build, the, you build a, a power of uh, uh, the power to deny your labor. So, you know, we kind of go through these hoops about, you know, oh, we're, we're designing buildings in, in China and Dubai and places that have deeply questionable labor practices for the people who are building them. Um, but we're not going to, I always say, we're not going to design our way out of that problem, right? Um, we have to find other ways. And, and collectivizing and, and being able to refuse in that way, I think, is one of them. I mean, just, just to say, I, I, I just love talking about this point. Um, but one of the things that motivated me to be part of the lobby was this scenario that I hear from my students, which is, um, I'm going to. I'm going to work for almost nothing for this firm that I admire because I know that they get paid next to nothing. And that chain needs to be broken at both ends. Um, but the the relationship of low fees to low wages is, is um, dramatic in that. And so one could say that as long as there is willing labor to work for nothing, there's no motivation for the firm owners to go to their clients and say, hey, you know what, I just can't do it for 10% of construction or whatever. Is I just can't because I have really smart people who are going to do the work for you that is brilliant. And if you if you honor the work that we do, you have to honor the work that they do, and they need to be paid more than what your salary is doing. I mean, there just needs to be a conversation between those two things. Right, which I think leads into the next point, uh, which is to demystify the architect as solo creative genius. No honors for architects who don't acknowledge their staff. <laughs> there we are. I think that was a perfect segue from one to the other. <laughs> Killian, do you want to talk about that? Well, the, the one thing, and, and as a way to like link them and also wrap up a little bit the conversation, the last one is that one of the reasons that the architecture lobby exists, and we keep hinting at it, hinting at it, and we keep talking about it, but that really to think of architects and architects, uh, architects as workers and the architecture as the, the result of, uh, of work. 
and and uh, and in that uh, in this in this point we're talking about that uh, even if let's say one uh, in the in the more traditional kind of model of practice one person has the vision brings up the resources and uh, and up to until recently seems to be setting a kind of an aesthetic or other kind of agenda that then a whole bunch of other people uh, follow. Uh, and then the words and everything go to that person who set up the vision. Uh, what we're saying is that uh, that ignores a lot of the, the work uh, experience, education that has uh, both, that changes, has changed that person's vision, that that person's vision didn't happen in a vacuum. And furthermore, uh, younger practices are, again, probably not so interested in having this kind of a heroic architect or the, the one person with the vision, the person that, that makes a curve that we've never seen before or whatever other kind of excuse we have for that, but rather that uh, the, and an acknowledgement that architecture is a, a team sport and that as such we need to uh, really uh, acknowledge it as that, that we wouldn't go to, you know, the Chicago Bulls and give uh, only the, the 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 a prize to to one of the Bulls. You would give it to the entire team, and that similarly, uh, it is important to acknowledge that the, that uh, even a person with a vision and quite honestly, often those visions uh, have tied uh, are tied to being able to like acquire the resources or being given that opportunity to see that vision, but that person didn't do it all by themselves. And that, that acknowledgement is good for, the, for that person, because that, that person's ideas have changed, but also for the entire field, because then it, be, it stops being about kind of branded, uh, branded visions. Uh, you, don't get, you no longer get a, a building that looks like Architect X. Uh, that, the branding aspect of that, has also is also problematic for architecture because then it, it causes a certain amount of kind of repetition and it, it causes that that kind of jewelry design mentality uh, that we were talking about before. Um, so so I think this is actually one of the the, the 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 all points in the manifesto are important, but this is one that I think is very important because it's something that we do see it both. Uh, for example, popular media uh, always goes after the big name, the big architect name. Instead of, uh, of uh, because it's easy for us to think that geniuses, or that, uh, and if we think that architects can be geniuses and that certain buildings are quite beautiful, that those things happen because of the vision of one particular genius. Rather than understanding that these things can also happen because a whole bunch of people together uh, developed a vision, even if one person maybe uh, was, a, was able to catalyze that. A little bit more than others and 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 that's also important yeah thanks i think i don't know that we'll be able to get through the whole manifesto you guys i think uh, that just means you'll have to come back at a later date but i'm wondering if before we let you go you could maybe very quickly uh tell us some of the things uh that the architecture lobby uh, hopes to achieve in 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 2017. um well, certainly one one of them, you know, was was mentioned with with the first point, um, trying to uh, get the um, equitable or best practices um, seal done. It, I I do think more and more that uh, young professionals are interested in not just their work life balance, but in 
uh, creative um, a- autonomy and some sense of control over over their life and their contribution. Um, so they're going to be looking to work for a place that doesn't just do sexy buildings, but actually understands um, and respects their their work. So that that seal is is a is a big one to to get out there. I think it really symbolizes um, our mission at the lobby. Fantastic. Yeah, and there's, there's, uh, I know there's lots of other projects going, but we got to wrap it up. Thanks again, Peggy and Killian. And Killian, thank you for making uh, Chicago sports team references, even though you're in New York. <laughs> we really appreciate it. Um, but we'll, we'll chat with you guys later. And that is the end of Buildings on Air. You're listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. And we'll see you next month, guys. Thanks. <laughs>